Welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, a Full Mind production. At Full Mind, our vision is to ensure every child has access to an exceptional education. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spearbauer. Welcome back, everybody, to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. We have an incredibly important and timely topic to discuss today with two esteemed guests. I'd like to introduce you to a return Learning Can't Wait guest, Hetty Chang, the Executive Director of Attendance Works. Welcome, Hetty. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. A pleasure to have you back. So excited to have you on this panel alongside Malika Elwin, the Executive Director of Attendance, Research, and Innovation for the New York City Department of Education. Welcome, Malika. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored to have you here today, both of you. Thank you for making time in your schedule. I'm sure our listeners already guessed what our big topic is today. It's attendance, a very important topic at any time of the school year, but particularly at the top of the school year right now, we're recording. It's the very beginning of November 2023, and I'm excited to jump in. I'm going to start off with my favorite first question, which is, how did you come to be the professional and personal version of yourself? I'll start with you, Hetty. So I think... um... I'm going to start with how I started to work on this issue of attendance, which was not a planned career move. (laughs) Let me put it that way. This is all about mission-driven work. Um, Prior um, to 2006, I had actually worked in an organization called California Tomorrow, where I really focused on how do we draw strength uh, from our incredible diversity while also addressing the um, inequities that face a lot of communities in color of color, and how do you um, build upon those assets that our diversity brings? And I had done that for a number of years, then worked as a program officer, looking at two generation approaches to um, moving families out of poverty, because I wanted to shift from just looking at, you know, when you start with work and you focus it starting with racial equity, you actually start with too small of a group of people who want to talk to you. Um, when you start with a work talking about strengthening families and addressing poverty, um, you end up with a much bigger um, set of folks who understand why they sh- we should be talking together. And then you can weave in an understanding of racial experiences, of bias, um, and how do we draw out strength from that into that. Um, in any case, in 2006, um, I was a mom with two kids in an um, elementary school uh, in San Francisco. I intentionally chose to have my kids in this pretty economically diverse, about uh, 40% free and reduced price lunch, elementary school, a quarter of everything. Um, and um, while I was there, a colleague of mine, Ralph Smith, uh, with a sen- he was a senior vice president for the Annie Casey Foundation, asked me to figure out whether I would take on the issue of looking at whether kids missing so much school in kindergarten and first was a reason they wouldn't be reading by the end of third grade. Um, And at the time um, in my school, there was a little boy who um, born the same day, year as my own child, my oldest kid. Uh, And this little boy um, 
had very different circumstances. Uh, he was growing up in the projects. His mom was trying to get off of welfare, but he was a smart, caring, dynamic kid who I used to do a lot of stuff on our expanded learning programs in our school as a volunteer. Um, and we used to, his mom and I used to throw joint birthday parties for our two kids. Um, but his mom had a lot less access to healthcare and probably not good access all along. And in second grade, just about the time that Ralph asked me to look at this issue, um, she died. Uh, and I saw, despite a very caring school, us not be able to help this little boy in the way that I thought we needed to. And so when Ralph asked me to look at this, I had this picture of a kid who I knew was smart and brilliant and had everything that my kid had, but not the same opportunities and not the same supports. And it frustrated me to no end that we were not help able to help in the ways that I thought we should. So when Ralph asked me to take on this issue, I took it on because I had this person who spoke to my heart, who made me want to look at this issue and really unpack it. And what I learned in my first years of doing research on this was that we didn't look at attendance data. We looked at truancy. We didn't look at average daily attendance. We didn't notice when kids were missing so much school. We didn't have systems to support our educators to look at that data, nor did we have coordinated systems so that, um, and in this case, you know, this poor, this, this, this child who was going through the child welfare system, but then was now across town with his aunt and having real transportation issues getting to school. And we just didn't have the systems to support. Um, so uh, what I realized, though, that we actually never had even the data to alert us when we needed to activate support. And that actually led me to produce something called Present Engaged and Accounted For. And this is actually a story with New York City. When we started Present Engaged and Accounted For, um, I was trying to get New York City to be part of the data, and I was unable at the time. But then I started talking to Kim Nauer at the new school and we started comparing notes. So um, in September of, of, in October of 20, 2008, I was ready to release. And by that time, Kim had secured all the data to figure out that there were 200,000 kids chronically absent in New York City. And we had a plan to start launching awareness of this issue where I would get Edweek to produce and publicized my new report and she would get the New York Times to write about her report about New York City. Um, and that was the launch of the first really national articles talking about chronic absence. Um, and then by 2010, I realized that we had to, I had to, it wasn't enough for me to be working part-time out of my basement as a consultant to the Annie Casey Foundation. We actually needed to start an organization and we launched Attendance Works. And I will just say one quick thing. So when we launched and I realized my, the first uh, thing that Ralph did was help me um, assign me a communications person. I said, communications is good. And she said, you cannot call this a chronic absence project. No one will ever look at your <laughs> work at all. It's too boring. Um, this is why we all need help. We ended up finally coming with this um, name, Attendance Works. In the first six months, um, we had maybe 600 people on our website that we had started. Now we have over 400,000 people come to our website every single year. Um, so, uh, and we work, you know, with 30 something states. Um, and I will also just say that what was really clear to me from the very beginning when we started Attendance Works is that this is not a top-down thing you tell people to do. 
This is a work that starts with the coalition of the willing. The people who see the kids not showing up every day means something's not right. They can't start with blame. They have to use the data, engage and talk to folks. And we actually, you know, the thing that really pushed this to the levels that it is now is when we first started, I remember having a, a, a conversation with someone um, in the DC area in a national organization who said, you're not gonna give us some new educa unfunded education metric and add that to our list of long list of things to do that we don't have the support to do. If you do, you're crazy. So I realized at that moment that I was not gonna start with any kind of federal legislation. I had to start with partnering with districts to show that if you took your data and you looked at your data, you could make a difference. And that's what we did. And by 2015, when um, ESSA was in its final, Every Student Succeeds Act was in its final form in the conference committee, because I don't actually lobby, colleagues of ours added it to, um, uh, to the legislation as a required reporting metric to the feds. And as and then, then there was also um, language about how you could have an optional accountability metric that wasn't based on test scores. Um, and what happened was we actually asked at that time, is there anything we need to do to make sure that stays in? And they said, no, because you've had enough work in these different parts of the country, we think that people will accept this. So we had the don't say anything lobbying campaign, because if you said something, someone might notice it and take it out. So um, and it worked well. It ended up in the um, ESSA accountability. And then over time, what we worked with was with states to convince them, and 36 decided to, that they and Washington, D.C., that they wanted to add it as an accountability metric. But it was important that states decided that they wanted to add it and wanted to act on it. This isn't something you force on people. This has to be with the coalition of the willing. Hey, those are some incredible, both details, uh, personal experiences and stories that you've shared here that have really illuminated why this work is so important to you and how your journey began in something you never thought you'd pursue, but really have built an incredible, incredible organization. And you mentioned that annually, you now have 400,000 folks visiting your website. And I'm pretty confident Malika is one of them. But before we dive into why Malika may be one of them, Malika, I'd ask you the same question. How did you come to be the personal professional version of yourself? Well, I came to education um, through law. So I am a lawyer by trade. And in 2005, I came to the New York City Department of Education and I was doing litiga litigation and special education. And um, at the end of 2007, that was my 10th year litigating. And um I'd been litigating for the DOE for two years. And I just, at that point, it was like, there has to be something more. Um, and when you get involved with special education, there are so many issues affecting children. Um, and the system, you know, is supposed to support children in a way that they can grow. Um, and that doesn't always happen. And I just thought that there was more that I could be doing um, with my skill set that would help support children um, in their in their growth. And I saw that as a way to help leaders, that help schools, that help grow communities. And so I made a shift away from 
um, litigation and law um, and really went into, um, at that time, what was um, networks in New York City public schools. Um, so I was supporting um, principals, primarily um, high school level principals. Um, and this is my 18th year with the Department of Education. And so I've had, I think in my career, like a full wraparound. I've been through um, so many different areas. And, you know, my thing with education is really like the whole child and they're, you know, the systems and structures that are in place, they affect every part of a child's journey through this system, right? And attendance is really a symptom of so many larger issues, right? And so when you're talking about attendance, right, you really have to really look at the larger picture because it's just a symptom. And if you don't understand that, you really can't then address attendance at all, right? Because the barriers and the things that really keep students out of school are the things that are affecting, you know, us every day, you know, food insecurities, transportation issues, health issues, mental health issues. There are so many things. And what I like to say to my team, and I have a, a really great hardworking team, is that, you know, a lot of times, you know, the, the where we are in the world today, and a lot of people like to say pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. And I like to say, I don't speak in terms of pre and post-pandemic because we are where we are, right? And we really have to address and meet people where they are. And even if you, you know, look at the numbers, you know, pre-pandemic, we still had a problem, right? We still, you know, we still weren't serving students in the way that we we needed to. And that's why they were out of school. They were out of school before the pandemic. The problem just compounded after the pandemic, right? So we really have to really think about the things that we need to do to really serve our students. And if we do that well, right? If we address those needs, we get our students into the buildings and then we are better able to educate our students, right? And so that's what it's really about. And I just, you know, I have a seven-year-old myself and, you know, I was a kid, you know, from, you know, Lansing, Michigan. And, you know, I love school, right? And I think that most kids would love school, right? But you you can't love school if you have all of these barriers that are keeping you out, right? And so we really have to like attack those and really think about those and really think about the whole child. Um, and really just understand that attendance is a symptom of just a larger picture. Malika, I think you just named our episode. <laughs> attendance is a symptom. I see a lot of, uh, for folks who can't see us right now, which is everybody listening, you, I see a lot of vigorous nodding from Hetty about attendance being a symptom. Uh, I appreciate you sharing your journey as well, Malika. It's so powerful to hear how people who have such dedication to the students of a particular district or the nation in at large, how they get to where they are. And hopefully it inspires others who are listening. I'd love to zoom out for a second. We've obviously started to dive into the topic here today, the content. Uh, just three weeks ago, Henny, you were quoted in a 74 million piece about attendance, which I'm going to use the word pandemic, Malika, but this is not my, these are not my words. It said that two out of three students attend schools with high chronic absenteeism. 
That's really alarming. Eddie, can you help give us a little state of the union and set the stage for what we know at a national level, what trends we're seeing with attendance right now? Yeah, so it is incredibly disturbing to look at the data at a national level. So the federal government um, now collects data through EdFacts, and the last data for which we have data across the country is 21, the, the 2122 school year. So not this last school year, but the year before that. And um, when you look at the data, and, and they also produced data um, in 1718. I would have looked at 1819, but they didn't produce the data this way. In 1718 and 1819, we had about 8 million kids, and it was about a little bit more in 1819, but pretty stable at about 8 million. So I think the 1718 data holds true. In any case, if you look at, and we took this data in partnership with Johns Hopkins, so much credit to Bob Balfans and Von Burns on his team who are crunching this data with us. And we took a look at how many schools have 20% to 30%, that's high, and 30% or more, that's what we call extreme levels of chronic absence. And arguably, once a school has 20% of the kids chronically absent. You really need a system of support. You can't just think a oh, one person's going to address it. And the level of churn that is kind of happening is affecting both teaching and learning because, you know, it's not like all the kids miss the same two days and some kids are missing many more than two days. They're missing different days. So you might have a kid out of your classroom constantly. And how do you think about teaching and um, the challenges of that churn can affect students, um, academic performance, but also behavior. And, and, and we there is research by Michael, Michael Godfrey, for example, that shows it's not just the kids who are chronically absent. It's the kids who are in a classroom with high levels that are also having their educational experience affected. So we already knew by the summer from the work of Thomas um, D at Stanford, that chronic absence had already gone up to about 30% um, and close to that. Um, and we had actually been predicting that for a while. What I hadn't understood is it's not just 30% of the kids who are affected, it's all the kids in the schools with these high levels. And so if you look at the percentage of kids who had were in such high levels of chronic absence before the pandemic, it was only about 25% of our kids. Mm -hmm. So we went from 25%, which is a minority of our kids, to two thirds of all our, our kids being in the situation. And the same thing is true for schools, although you get to the measure in a little different way. Before the pandemic, about 28% of schools, all schools had between 20% and more levels of chronic absence. And now it's over two thirds of schools. And where you're seeing the really, so something like 56%, over half of our all our high schools now have extreme levels of chronic absence. Three quarters have 20% of all of our high schools. High schools already had higher levels of chronic absence, but there aren't as many high schools as there are elementary schools. Right now, there are about 20,000 almost elementary schools in this country that have extreme, I mean, one 30% of their kids chronically absent. And before the pandemic, it was only something like 3,550. And now it's close to 20,000. And not that I'm not worried about our high school too, 
But if you think about kids in elementary school who never get into a routine of showing up to school, their chances of reading by the end of third grade, their chances of counting, you know, their numeracy. And now if we don't address that issue and they get to middle and high school, we're not worried about the middle and high school crisis now. Wait till this cohort of kids goes through and they've never had a chance to get the basics. We are at a crisis that we just, I, I think I, I, I knew we were high, but when I looked at the data by school, I was astounded. And when I look at the data by grade band, um, you know, and in 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 Heidi's right, like high school is one thing, right? But when I look at the data by grade band, and especially when you look at the data by, if you're looking at the data by pre-K, and then K, um, and first grade, um, it it gives me heart palpitations, right? Because you know those are the critical ages, right? That's where our children learn how to read. That's where they learn their behavior skills. I mean, that's where a lot of like that critical, is a critical time in school and the skills that they need, they learn in those grades, right? And a lot, when you look at those numbers um, and the routines, right? And if you have very high chronic absenteeism in those grades, the predictor, right, is off the chart of what happens, right? And the learning loss is just astounding. And so it's really about like, really like narrowing down on those grades and not ignoring the other grades, the higher grades, right? But like really making families and educators like understand, right? The importance of like, you know, those one or two days that you may be missing a month or more, right? Like it really adds up, but it's not just about just the days, right? It's about the learning loss. And so like connecting those two for people are very important because sometimes that's the missing, that that's the missing factor, right? And, you know, like I said, I'm the mother of a seven-year-old, right? And we know little kids, you know, germs are germs and germs and germs, it's all that happens in the younger grades, right? But like really like thinking about and having those conversations and helping families like work through that, right? Because those days, they add up and the amount of learning loss that happens in those critical skills that, you know, those children miss, um, it makes it makes a big difference. It, it, it really does. And it's, it's just, when you look at the data, it, it's scary. It really is. And we, so California is a good example of that, you know, uh, in 21, 22, 40% of all our kindergartners in California, that's almost 200,000 kindergartners were chronically absent. Um, and that is such a challenge. You know, the one thing I will say is, while I know I'm talking about all the challenges, I also will say, we know the steps you can take we have to implement them to change this. So we just released an early matters um, the toolkit about the addressing this as part of the transition into kindergarten. So when you reach out before kindergarten begins um, and help uh, go into preschools and help kids and families feel comfortable in the next, a lot of this, by the way, is all about family engagement and relationship building. You start with welcome and engagement and make sure, you know, one of the challenges with the pandemic is that a lot of times families now drop their kids off at the 
the edge of the playground. They don't come in, um, whether it's safety issues or whether it's COVID-related issues. And I, I actually think we can't assume that um, sometimes we we have these, you know, it's important to have the texting apps, but they're not sufficient. We have to really do deep engagement because when families don't understand what kids are learning, they don't prioritize showing them up to school. And a lot of folks are like, oh, well, kindergarten, when I was in kindergarten, it was, it was play. It didn't matter very much. I didn't have to show up. But that's not kindergarten these days. And getting in this routine is so important. Also, you know, when kids are in a routine of going to school, this is part of that education with families. It's really critical because that's how, how you help you deal with transition. That separation anxiety in kindergarten is totally real. And the way you get kids who are five years old through separation anxiety is you make sure they show up all the time. But in our toolkit, we talk about reaching out, starting with a warm welcome and engagement, partnering with families throughout the year, making sure that they understand these issues. Another really key issue is offering supports to reduce health-related absences. This is where a pandemic has made a huge difference. First of all, people are under this false impression that health-related absences are unavoidable, and that's not true. It is absolutely it's not true. Absolutely not true. Like everything from, you can just prevent kids from being sick. Teach all your five-year-olds to wash their hands, you know? <laughs> um, make sure that they, when they sneeze, they sneeze into their elbow. These are actually learned behaviors that when you talk about those routines, Malika, that you kids have to get, these are part of those routines. But also we did focus groups with kindergarten families and they said, we don't know when we're supposed to keep our kids home or send them to school. And we're not sure we're getting very, we're, they're often not getting good guidance um, right? schools. That's clear and easy for them to understand. So if you have the sniffles, it is not necessarily a reason to stay home. You can have allergies. You can have lots of things that are not COVID. If you have a stomach ache, it's often a sign of anxiety, not that your kid's getting sick and you should keep them home. So both we got to prevent, and, and by the way, families didn't get access to dental care, didn't get access to immunizations, didn't get access to health screenings. So we can help make sure we prevent them from getting sick, stay healthy, and then know that they still need to show up to school because that's actually important to their child's health and well-being. We also know that when schools have data-informed teams that look at this and can figure out who needs more outreach, when they engage community stakeholders so that um, they can be part of addressing barriers, and when we organize attendance campaigns that really send understandable message messages about why showing up to school matters so much, we can actually reduce kindergarten chronic absence. Um, it's just that we haven't it's going to take a while. We we had three years of a pandemic where people got the message, keep your home, child home for every and any symptom of illness. We right. are not and, there anymore. Right. We, we talked we talk so much about all of the scary things, right? What we didn't do a great job of is, right, then re-educating, right, and really talking and having, like, these open conversations and dialogue, right? And so, like, we don't know. Like, as, as, as parents, like, we don't know. And as educators, like, we don't know either because the message was for so long, stay at home, stay at home, stay at home, right? And one of the great things about, you know, I use attendance work in, in my practice all, all the time all the time, right? But there is this great document on attendance work 
um, about health related issues, right? And it talks about like fever and it talks about the sneezing and the coughing and the upset stomach, right? And it's a great tool for schools to use um, and that we have given out. Um, and it really just helps educate like parents about like when you can send your kid back to school, like after an illness, right? Or the diarrheas, the, the, the different things that go on. And, you know, even as a parent, that helps me because, you know, as a parent, you freak out like my kid had a fever. Well, how long do I need to keep my kid out of school if the, if my kid had a fever? And like, you really just don't have anyone to talk to about these things, right? And so like, those are the things that just really help. But it really is about like this community engagement and this like full like wraparound service and like really understanding. But you have to use data because you cannot engage in a conversation with families or your community if you don't know what the data is telling you, right? And so there are a lot of people in schools that are having conversations with parents and gathering information and putting it in, into some type of system, right? But if you're not looking at the, the data, if you're not disaggregating the data, if you're if, if, if you can't then go out right and address the barriers if you don't know what the data is telling you. If you don't know what the data is telling you, how can you address the barriers? And so like that is also a really big part of the work is really like gathering data, disaggregating the data, and then making a plan based on what the data is telling you. Like that is a large piece of the work. And if you're not using data, there's no way that you can create a system then to address attendance, right? And one more thing I'm gonna say, with chronic absenteeism, there are still so many people that don't know what chronic absenteeism is. And when they hear the word to them, it sounds like some type of horrible, dirty word, right? And so like, you really have to, we really have to also invest in really, like explaining and making people understand exactly what chronic absenteeism is, right? And so you're like, you know, if you're absent on average two days a month during the school year, that's gonna add up and you're gonna miss 10% of the school year, right? That's on average 18 days that you're missing and you'll be chronically absent. But you have to move beyond that because what then does that mean, right? And you have to connect that number that 10% to learning loss. Because if you just tell me as a parent the 18 days, and I'm like, oh, okay, well, what does that mean, right? But if you put it in the terms of like my child, then it has learning loss and may have missed a critical skill they need to move forward to do their best, that changes the conversation, right? Like so you think differently about it. It's not just a number in some days. So I, I think it's really about really educating um, you know, the community and families and really having open and honest conversations about it. And Malika, one of the things that I um, really appreciate about what New York City has done has been its history of investment in community schools. Yes. Um, because combating this is a bigger challenge than just school staff alone have the resources to address. If the challenge is health, you might need health providers on your school campus. If it's transportation, you might need, you know, if it's neighborhood safety, if it's bullying in the classroom, or even how you are able to engage families when you can pull on community partners who maybe see families in their community, in their churches, or at their organizations. And one of the things I love, um, we actually did a webinar with the Campaign for Grade Level Reading, and I was able to highlight Children's Aid Society. And one of the things they did, so this is sort of, there's both when you miss telling kids 
and families, how that affects their learning or their engagement or their access to resources. But there's also the upfront stuff of helping families understand why, what are the kids learning when they're there? And Children's Day yes. does this, these amazing short videos of little kids talking about, well, why I like to come to school or a mom talking about why school's so important and having, you know, and that's really um, leveraging the social media that we have so that families, okay, so maybe you can't walk into the classroom, but you can show a picture of what your kids are learning in the classroom. You can even send a picture home of a kid learning in your classroom so that families both understand when they're not there, they're going to learn out, miss out, but, oh, I want them to get there because today this is what we're going to learn. And I think having community partners, though, and the RAND study that was done on the New York City um, community schools really showed that one of the first outcomes you get when you have powerful, strong partnerships is improved attendance. The Reading and the numeracy is actually a little more of a lagging indicator because you first got to get the kids there to benefit from the instruction in order to get the other outcomes. But if we don't see them showing up, and I so appreciate your definition of, of, of chronic absence because what we're trying to say, yeah, it's 18 days over the whole year, but in the first month, who's missed out on two days? Who's missed out on four days in the second month? Because if you can take action and prevent them from being chronically absent, then you can make sure that the consequences of those absences don't happen. And so often it's, um, we have a team, but maybe they're not using data or they're not using data consistently enough, right. early enough, so we can take those prevention-oriented steps or both to see who needs more support, but also maybe there's this one teacher who's got incredible attendance and you ought to go and find out, well, what are they doing and how can other people learn from that person? Right. And so one of the things that, you know, we're doing um, in New York City, um, and the, a lot of the work is focused not only in the schools, but through the districts with the superintendents. Um, and so, you know, each of our superintendents um, have a district uh, attendance coordinator or a district attendance point um, that's really responsible for working with their uh, group of schools on attendance matters. And really like looking at, we have multiple data dashboards that they can disaggregate the data from and look at it in different ways, right? But really this first part of the these first two months, right, is really about, you know, drilling down and really like looking at the numbers and identifying for the schools, like who are those kids who missed one or two days, right? And making a immediate outreach to those students like so we don't need the days to pile up right we have we make immediate outreach to those that we looked at the first week the second week okay so who missed what was the outreach the telephone calls the conversations right if we need to you know send out an attendance teacher to make a home visit and even as even for those kids that just missed two days right because two days are, are important right especially in the in the first month of school two days it's a lot, right? And so like, you know, I know like a lot of times, you know, kids and parents think, well, you know, if I miss the first day of school or I miss like a day in the, the first week, like there's not a lot of things going on in school, but there are a lot of things going on in school, right? That's where you get the routines and what's what's going to happen in this particular class and what I'm going to learn and who's in my class. And, you know, you get comfortable, right? And in, in, in learning those things. And so if you're missing out on that and you're that student who's coming in at a later date, whatever, and that disrupts not only the class, right? But then you, that student, you know, doesn't feel as connected as the other students in the class. Like, so those things are important. 
And so you have to have like a team that's making that outreach um, for those students like immediately and often, right? And having those conversations and, you know, figuring out what's going on. And sometimes, you know, that outreach you learn like little things, right? Like, so maybe, you know, Johnny didn't come to school because there's like some issue that's going on at home, right? That the school has the resources that they can immediately address, right? That will then get Johnny to school. And so there are things like that through those conversations and that outreach that most of the time um, through those conversations, the schools really do have the resources to be able to address that. And if they can't address it, right? If the school has a CBO, a partnership, right, there is that extra layer, right, where then they're making that outreach, you know, in addition, and they have a, a relationship with a family or a student, right, and then can be that extra resource that, you know, gets the kid back into school. And sometimes what happens also is that kids may not show up in the day to school, but then they go to the after school program or whatever it is. And so if you have that connection and that relationship with that the CBO, right? They're that extra layer that then then can also has eyes on the kids or, you know, is involved with the family that can then if you, if everyone is, you know, on the same page around attendance and they're aware that the kid didn't come to school that day, right? They can also engage in those conversations. So it's it's really about like you have to have a full wraparound service, right? And everyone has to be on the same page and you're sharing that information and data, right? For the betterment of the kid and the family, because we all know it's important that we get our kids into school for so many reasons. Um, learning loss, yes, but like safety reasons. And we know that for a lot of kids, that's where they get their meals. But then we have also a lot of services in schools. A lot of our schools have wash machines and dryers and they have like toiletries for school. So all these things that students may need um, that they don't have access to in the community are available um, in a lot of schools that can really service families. And, and Malika, one thing I wanna um, just point out from New York City, because sometimes I think that you all in New York City take it for granted, you have amazing data dashboards. I was trying to remember what the name of the Ooh, data dashboard is. Um, and the thing is, is that I'm in too many places where you know, it's some poor principal pulling them together and trying to create an Excel spreadsheet is completely unsustainable because once that principle goes, or even if they just didn't have the weekend to do that, it's not going to happen. You all um, have new visions. Is that we have new visions? We have insight. I so mean, we have, have, and you make it easy and you train people on these data dashboards. Yeah. And in addition to that, you secure confidentiality agreements with your partners so that they can then get access to the dashboard and see without having to go through a ton of bureaucracy, oh, Haley missed school, I should follow up with her. And then I can coordinate and keep with the school team. I can't yes. tell you how unusual that actually is. Um, I remember with some of your predecessors when they were talking about community schools, I'm like, you've completely underattended to how much you're having a data-driven dashboard to move your work because you all just take it for granted because it's in place. But let me tell you, it is not in place in other places. And so one thing, I, I do think that's pretty amazing. And I'm curious to Malika, um, so we're starting to see, and this is promising, what we've seen nationally was that... Um, you know, chronic absence was about 30% in 21-22. Mm -hmm. 
we saw, and again, I think people have different levels, especially when you have higher poverty, you, you might be higher than the national level. Then we're seeing from states a couple percentage decreases. And that yeah. ranges from very little decrease to maybe a 5% decrease, maybe on average a 3% decrease. That was for the 22-23 school year. And then I'm beginning to see a little bit of data um, for sort of September, October, which actually is very promising. I'm keeping my fingers crossed that this year will continue, you know, no big anything's happening, but you're even seeing, so we're not back to pre-pandemic, but we're seeing some substantial decreases. What are you seeing in New York City? So for us, um, for the for our prior school year, we saw a 4% decrease. Um, and so what I've been saying to, you know, the, the team is that, you know, for me, I feel like that is a significant decrease citywide with the number of students we have um, and with, you know, some of the, the, the health things that were happening last year, RSV, you know, was a, a large hit for us um, last year. And so we, we're seeing a 4% um, decrease for last year. Um, for this, for the first two months of, of school, we are still seeing a decrease. Um, overall, our numbers are pretty close to what they were pre-pandemic, at least for the first two months. We don't have that much data because remember, it, the, it, the data is tracked based on the number of school days, right? So we really didn't see our um, CA numbers until, until a certain date in October, right? I think it was like October well, and, and historically, if we go to pre-pandemic trends, the very best attendance is always in the very first couple months. Correct. Yes. And then where you start to lose it is the holidays, right. and the end of school. Right. Thing. And um, I mean, again, just shout out to Kim Nauer and the um, new school. They have this attendance heartbeat that I think you all now have used and many people have adopted where you could see those kind of patterns that happen. So, but that is... That's amazing news. Even though I recognize we cannot depend, you know, it will, if you could keep it to pre-pandemic levels, that would be like a minor miracle. It, um, would, it would be a minor miracle, but I, <laughs> we're, we're, we're chipping away at it, right? And, you know, one of the numbers that I definitely am happy to see um, this year when we're looking at our data is that the number of um, what we're calling what we're calling never attend, which is what we used to call no show um, in New York City. Um, that number is significantly lower than it has been at this time of year. And so I know that there are more kids in our schools, right? So I know that they're there, they're showing up, right? And so that number is definitely lower. So I think that's encouraging. And we're, you know, we're we're working it. So I know that the teams are working, the schools are working, the districts are working. Um, but I also, you know, say to you know teams like there, you're not going to, you know, wake up right, and there's going to be like a 15 percent decrease in chronic absenteeism like in a year. Like so, I, I I try to like you know get you know folks to really understand like 
A, that's not how data works, but B, right? Like this is a process, right? And so when you're addressing barriers, right? And these barriers that we are talking about, like they're significant, like food insecurities, mental health issues, health issues, there are cultural issues, right? There are so many things keeping kids out of school besides the fact that we have, you know, an increase in um, migrant families who are coming into New York City, who are moving around and the challenges of, you know, being in temporary housing, right? And there are significant challenges that those families are facing, right? And so I think that we're doing a better job with, you know, tracking those families and getting them um, into schools and um, providing services. But there are still significant, like, barriers that are keeping those kids out of school that, you know, we have to, you know, this is not, uh, Department of Education or New York City Public Schools in in itself cannot like resolve all these barriers. So there are so many different moving pieces, right? And community organizations and different um, city agencies that have to be involved in this work, right? And that's like, you know, also like a conductor making sure all these pieces are moving, you know, in concert, right? Because sometimes if you don't know what one hand is doing, like it, it, it won't work. And so, you know, I try to like, you know, really temper like, you know, the message also around that, like everyone is working, you know, as hard as they, as, as we possibly can, right? But this is real like work and this is like social issues that we're, we're also talking about. And so like, you know, you're not gonna, we're not gonna wake up and in one year we're gonna be at, you know, pre-pandemic numbers. It's, it's, it, it's not gonna happen that way. But if we consistently continue to address it, we we chip away at these numbers. And, if, and as we educate really people around around this and really engage families at the numbers it comes it, it will come down and it has come down and so we just have to keep working at that and getting better at that um i think that really is the key malika and hetty this is the best podcast ever because i am not talking and you two are engaging literally on on the work on what you see in your own experiences the implementations that have been successful Hattie, your astounding knowledge of just every school system is incredible I, you know i really want to in our final few moments together i do want to dig in because you talked a little bit about attendance as a symptom you both addressed how that looks but what we haven't talked about is something that attendance works dedicates a whole section of the website to and where i really like to live which is around focusing on the positive and celebrating the wins and successes and even incentive systems. So I'm going to ask you to do that with a lens on either school leaders or teachers themselves as the final question. What advice would you give a school leader and or a teacher about how to use positive incentives and positive framing to really drive attendance, attendance improvements in their community? As our final question, I'll start with you, Malika, with that question. So I would say, and I, and I think one of the things that uh, school leaders have started to really do um, is remember back in the day when, you know, the great emphasis was on like perfect attendance, right? And so there was these celebrations around perfect attendance, right? And I, and I, and I think, you know, those celebrations to an extent are still important, right? But you have to celebrate like the little wins, right? And so if there is a student who traditionally, you know, missed a great 
you know, portion of school and you get that, you get that student to come into school three days a week, you need to celebrate those wins, right? Because when you make kids feel great about that, right? And you also make the team that is working so hard to get that kid to come into school three days a week and you celebrate the things that they have done, that positive engagement, that outreach that they have made, right? You celebrate that, you make that important, right? And you say to you say to that student, you know, you did so great coming into school three days a week, that makes a significant difference. So you have to celebrate the small wins, right? And for a student who traditionally misses a week to two weeks at a time, coming into school for three days is a big win. And you have to change your thinking about that. And you have to celebrate that. And then you have to make a plan about how you build on that, right? So you got the kid in this time for three days. How do we get the kid in for four days, right? And so you really then push your team around that. And so it's not thinking about how do we get the kid to 100% attendance, right? It's about how do we make the small change that makes a, a that makes a difference right? And that really makes a difference in that particular child's life, right? And so you can make these celebrations around those students or groups of students where you've made these incremental changes, right? Around like that data point where you're getting them into the building at a more consistent basis, even if it's not 100%. And so, you know, leaders that are able to do that, I think that they have been seeing success in a different way for those students. Um, and it's been paying off for them. So, just celebrate the, the celebrate the small wins. Those those wins are are just as important as hundred percent attendance. Love that. It's so concrete. It's so actionable, and it also follows what we know about psychology and the human brain and how humans are are motivated with by celebrating their successes. Thank you for sharing that, Malika. Hetty, same question for you. So I think. Uh, well, I agree with everything Malika just said, and I'm going to draw upon the kind of that broader concept of building on strengths. Um, we've had a pretty tough number of years. It's always important to build on strengths, but I think people feel hopeless these days. So building on strengths is even more important. And I'm going to talk about this from a, a teacher perspective, because if we've got two thirds of our schools with 20% or more, this is an all hands on deck. And the people who have arguably the most meaningful relationships to every child in a school our teachers. Teachers need to find ways that they can build upon strengths of kids and families to motivate attendance. And I think you can do that in the work that you already do. It's not always about doing more. It's about doing things differently. And my example would be, for example, parent-teacher conferences. We have on our website a whole thing about caring conversations and often when we're in a rush, we rush to inform. Oh, Malika, you missed 10 days. What was going on? As opposed to starting off with, Malika, how are you? How's it going? Hey, I'm so glad to see you. Hey, Malika, you know what I love about you is when you're in school, you pay so much attention to the social emotional needs of all your friends and your peers. God, you are doing great. How do you do that? We should make sure everyone, and Hey, Malika, I noticed you missed these days. Does that seem like the same days that you missed? What's going on? How can I help you? How can we build on the strengths that you bring, the things that make you want to show up to school to get you then to show up to school? 
Now, if we build that into every parent-teacher conference, every check-in with kids, where we're not starting by criticizing them, we're one of the challenges is we have a long history of truancy where people are accustomed to being blamed, scolded, and you know, thou sh you should have done this. And folks just don't want to go there and they'll even not show up to avoid that conversation. So we have to start with strengths. And I think that starting, I mean, again, everyone in the school and teachers need support from all of us, but teachers, because of the relationship, because they see kids every day are in an incredible position to build on strengths so kids believe in themselves, believe in their future, and believe that school is a place that will help them realize that future. And believe, well, so, and believe that the school wants them or the teacher wants them there. Absolutely. Right? It feels good, like hearing you say that, Hetty, and, and using Malika as an example, like I want to be that student who gets that sort of feedback from the person <laughs> who is in my building. I love that. I, and it's so specific and, so, again, so actionable. Hetty and Malika, this has been literally the most fun to witness you two interact and share and, and talk about such an important topic. Thank you so much for making time in your busy schedules to come share with the listeners of the podcast. Thank you for having us. This has been great. Absolutely. And it is such a pleasure to, Malik, to meet you, Malika. I feel like I've known you for much longer than our hour podcast. Hetty, I'm so happy to meet you because I am on attendance works all the time. The most organic beginning of a real in real person relationship that I have ever witnessed. <laughs> I, I can't wait to have you all back soon and talk more about this podcast. Thank you both for coming on. Thank you for having us. And Malika, I will email you so that we can yes, please in do. person over Thanksgiving. Okay, <laughs> absolutely. Thank you, Haley, for Thank you together. for coming. Thanks for everybody tuning in today. Thanks for listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at fullmindlearning.com.